You're listening to the Complete Concussion Management Podcast with Dr. Cameron Marshall. Ask Concussion Doc is a show where we answer your questions about concussions, treatment, and rehabilitation to help practitioners better manage these injuries. Enjoy the show. This is Concussion Chronicles, where you get all of the top research analyzed, synthesized, and delivered directly to your inbox every single month. There's over 100 scientific publications on concussion every single month. How do you know what's relevant? How do you know what's important? What's worth spending your time? Not only that, but how do you keep up with everything else that you have to keep up with as a healthcare professional? Concussion Chronicles solves this problem by having our research team scour the literature every single week and give you a synthesis and summary of the best and most relevant concussion-related scientific publications for each month. This saves you time and gives you what you need to know each and every month. Click on the link in the show notes to sign up for Concussion Chronicles today. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Ask Concussion Doc, episode number 60. That's cool. Um, so this format, I'm going to do it a little bit differently. I'm talking about what's called the nocebo effect today. Uh, it's going to be a little bit controversial to some of you, but hang tight with me. There was a recent paper published on this, um, which kind of outlines a lot of the evidence surrounding the idea behind nocebo effects in various formats, including randomized control trials for drugs and observational clinical trials and all sorts of different um, types of research. So it's a well, um, pretty well documented, pretty well researched phenomenon that can occur. And because it's just such a really nice summary, I thought it was a great way to frame the conversation around nocebo effects and how it might relate to concussion, post-concussion syndrome, and also chronic traumatic encephalopathy. I'm also then going to sporadically input maybe some patient stories uh, that I think up on the fly. I literally have not prepared anything for this in terms of that. So we'll just see what comes to my mind as I go. Um, That's typically how I do these podcasts anyway. So let's see. Okay, first off, definition. Nocebo effects, everyone knows the placebo effect. The placebo effect is where you get a therapeutic benefit out of a drug or treatment or otherwise that is not considered to have any therapeutic benefit to it. It's an inert substance. For example, it might be a sugar pill that somebody tells you or you think might treat you know, pain. And as a result of taking this sugar pill, you actually have a reduction in pain. So placebo is a very well-known ph- phenomenon. This is why they do double-blinded placebo-controlled trials to see what the actual therapeutic effect of the drug is and what the actual placebo effect of, or the potential placebo effect of a drug is. A nocebo is where it's kind of the opposite of that, where you get a harmful effect from an inert treatment, subject, pill, whatever it may be, uh, that actually has no negative um, effects biologically. So nocebo effects refer to new or worsening symptoms that develop in response to negative health-related information, beliefs, and or experiences. 
Uh, through health campaigns and media coverage, emerging knowledge on the risks of this injury has been quickly disseminated to the public. And nowadays, the public perceives concussions as more hazardous to health than ever before. While advancements in concussion-related research and care are of great importance, importance and value, we ask in this article whether the increasing negative publicity regarding concussion also carries any latent costs. Are additional nocebo effects being fostered? Um, question. To do so, we will review the literature on psychological and neurobiological processes underlying nocebo effects and present a series of clinical studies demonstrating the ways in which nocebos may impact concussion outcomes both clinically and societally. So this is a paper and the lead author, so the title is Nocebo Effects in Concussion is All That is Told Beneficial. And Ginger Pollock uh, MD is the lead author of that and it was published in the American Journal of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation uh, and it's actually published ahead of print so it's not even yet published in print but for those of you looking for what the reference is it is nocebo effects and concussion is all that is told beneficial so if you read this paper you're gonna get a lot of what I'm gonna cover here uh, but it is a really great summary of everything okay so back to our definition nocebo effects refer to newer worsening symptoms that develop following placebo treatments more broadly nocebo effects arise in response to negative health related information beliefs and or experiences that lack any specific biological impact on health or illness but can nevertheless influence outcomes through their contextualized psychosocial significance. I did a post on Instagram yesterday talking about how certain cognitive complaints such as memory impairments um, can be related to psychological issues versus actual brain injury or injury to certain areas of the brain. Many people think, oh, I have a memory impairment following concussion. However, in many cases, when these people undergo neuropsychological testing, they actually don't have any true memory impairment. So this is often a misattribution of symptoms, meaning that they believe that the memory impairment they're suffering is an actual memory impairment, but it may just be inattention or it may be, um, um, yeah, basically in, in, in just inattention. They're not thinking about what they wanted to be thinking about and they forget something or they forget to do something. The example I always use is I'm at work. My wife calls me saying, hey, we need avocados. And I go, yeah, okay, no problem. I'll pick it up on my way home. And I go about my day. I'm doing stuff. I'm talking to people. I'm in meetings. And then I leave and I drive home and I go home. And as soon as I open the door, she goes, did you get any avocados? Right? Somebody in the concussion state or post-concussion state often thinks, oh my God, my memory. My wife told me to get avocados and I forgot. I didn't forget that she told me. I still have the memory of her telling me. I just forgot at the time because on my way home, I'm thinking about all the other random crap that happened throughout my day. So it's a misattribution of symptoms potentially, which then is more amenable to you know, potential psychological intervention and getting at kind of the root cause because oftentimes that will be uh, misattributed to stuff. So anyway, got a lot of a lot of feedback, a lot of comments on that one. Uh, a lot of people um, upset by the fact that I was alluding to that. However, this is just the research, right? I'm just presenting the research. I try to be as evidence-based as possible and I don't want to necessarily minimize what people's experiences are, but I also want people to realize how powerful your mind is and without um, exploring that as a potential cause, you're actually just holding yourself back from recovery, right? Going down the path of continuous cognitive-based rehab when you don't have a cognitive problem, 
is not going to be beneficial to you, right? Which is why these studies demonstrate that psychological intervention is actually superior to cognitive rehabilitation in many of these cases. Okay. Now, a lot of people again throwing throwing hate my way because of that. I'm just bringing the research to you. Um, Many nocebo effects are due to the misattribution of normal background symptoms which can lead to treatment, non-adherence, unnecessary clinical visits, or even the use of additional medications to treat side effects. While advancements in concussion-related research and clinical care are of great importance, we might also wonder whether increasing publicity and negative representation of concussion carries any latent costs. Okay, so moving down to um, some of the studies around nocebos and some of these examples are very interesting. So evidence from placebo treatments in randomized controlled trials. So this is looking at mostly drug trials. A primary source of evidence for nocebos come from, comes from pooled data on individuals randomized to the placebo arms of pharmaceutical trials. The development of adverse responses to placebos in clinical trials is believed to be psychosocially and contextually mediated through nocebo effects, as inert drugs themselves do not exert direct biological actions. So I give someone a pill that doesn't contain anything and they experience negative outcomes. Often the listed side effects of what the drug is actually for. And they're not getting the drug, they're getting the placebo, but they're still experiencing the negative side effects from it. Adverse responses to placebos are common, occurring in approximately one quarter of subjects. So the power of suggestion is tremendous, one quarter of subjects. Converging evidence suggests that nocebos may even account for a majority of the side effects reported in clinical trials. The side effects coming from the group that's getting the placebo more so than the group that's getting the actual drug themselves. Um, expectations for anticipation also play a role as adverse responses to placebos and clinical trials often mirror those associated with the active drug. So example um, they have here, among uh, depressive patients, dry mouth and drowsiness are more common with placebo tricyclic antidepressants than with uh, placebo selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. Among people with migraines, um, anorexia and memory complaints are more common uh, in the placebo trials than versus other drug classes. So the side effects listed for the drug, if you're going into a drug trial, they say you might get the placebo, you might get the actual drug. We don't know because we're blinded to it. Potential side effects include dry mouth uh, and drowsiness. Well, even the people getting the placebo start to experience dry mouth and drowsiness. Right? So just the thought that it could happen creates those symptoms subjectively in the patient. Sham acupuncture is more likely to cause pain, redness, and swelling. No needle is going into the skin, yet one of the side effects of acupuncture could be pain, redness, and swelling. And so even the people getting the sham start to experience pain, redness, and swelling. Your mind is crazy, crazy powerful. Evidence from nocebo RCTs comparing two types of information about side effects. So this kind of separates it. Certain people are given information about the side effects, certain people are not. Let's see how that plays out. A handful of studies have also assessed whether medication-related information provided directly to individuals could impact the frequency of side effect reporting. In a multi-center study evaluating aspirin, or another drug that I cannot pronounce, for unstable angina, 
the possibility of gastrointestinal side effects was mentioned in the consent forms at some clinical sites, but not others. Correspondingly, withdrawal rates due to gastrointestinal side effects were six times greater among individuals warned about these side effects in advance. Right? The presentation of information and the thought that it could happen leads to the negative repercussions, the negative consequences. In another large analysis of statins, subjects participated in one of two clinical phases, a placebo-controlled placebo double-blinded randomized phase versus a non-blinded, non-randomized open-label phase. Rates of uh, statin-associated muscle symptoms were equivalent between those receiving statins and placebos in the blinded, uh, randomized portion of the study. But when they were unblinded, when the person knew they were getting the placebo, it dropped. The statin users still got the high portion of side effects, but the people getting the pl placebo did not get those side effects. If they didn't know what drug they were getting, both groups equally suffered the same amount of side effects even though this group wasn't even getting the drug, okay? Uh, another one talking about uh, cardiovascular disease and a certain drug for that, which can cause erectile dysfunction. In men, uh, newly diagnosed with cardiovascular disease were randomized to start atenanol under three different conditions. Group A was not informed of the drug's name. Group B was informed of the drug's name. Group C was told of the drug's name and potential sexual side effects. Three months later, the incidence of erectile dysfunction was 3.1% in group A, 15.6% in group B, and 31.2% in group C. Being told and being able to do your own research and go on Google and start searching, and also being told the potential side effect of erectile dysfunction is significantly more likely to actually lead to erectile dysfunction. Okay, so you can see the power of suggestion throughout all of these different scenarios. Verbal suggestion. Direct verbal suggestion is among the most straightforward means for generating a nocebo effect. Studies have demonstrated, for example, that giving asthmatics nebulized, so meaning uh, air into their system, nebulized saline labeled as an irritant can worsen respiratory function and precipitate bronchoconstrictive attacks. And that injecting saline labeled as an allergen to, into patients with food allergies can cause allergic symptoms. Even though it's just saline, if it's labeled as potentially an allergen and you give it to somebody with a lot of allergies, they will experience allergic reaction. Right? So let's, that's just, it's just, that's how powerful your mind is. Furthermore, among laboratory studies involving healthy subjects, headaches have been induced by simulating passage of an electrical current. So if they tell you that there's an electrical current going through your brain, like they say, we're going to hook up these electrodes and we're going to pass an electrical current through your brain, and they'll tell you that it might cause headaches. Okay? Um, do, do, do. Furthermore, among laboratory studies involving healthy subjects, headaches have been induced by simulating the passage of an electrical current through one's head along with the false message of its headache-promoting effects. Uh, symptoms of headache, nauseousness, itchy skin, and drowsiness have been uh, elicited following exposure to an inert substance paired with advance warning of these specific symptoms. If we think that concussions will cause long-term headaches and that's precipitated throughout the media and everybody else, guess what? The patient is more likely to experience long-term headaches.
right? Negative verbal suggestion can even negate the effectiveness of valid treatments. Administering nitrous oxide or topical analgesia along with the false message that these interventions worsen rather than alleviate pain actually results in increased pain. You're giving somebody painkillers and telling them that they'll actually worsen their pain and guess what? Even though they've taken a painkiller, their pain gets worse. A similar pattern of worsened rather than improved muscle tension has been observed when pairing negative information with a commonly used muscle relaxant. Getting into prior experiences and classical conditioning. Nocebos can also be learned through prior experience. Experimenters in one study induced a positive or negative treatment experience with an inert topical analgesic patch. Then they exposed those healthy subjects to a new inert topical analgesic patch days later. In response to the new patch, those with a negative prior treatment history reported higher pain than those with a positive treatment history. Failure to benefit from one treatment was found to carry forward and negatively affect the outcomes from subsequent treatment. I'm just going through all these things that I've highlighted as I was reading this article. Um, in this study, a single member, uh, how this can be transmitted from peer to peer. So this is called social contagion. In one study explicitly demonstrated, or one study explicitly demonstrated how nocebos can be transmitted from peer to peer. In this study, a single member of a group of subjects was falsely informed of the risk of altitude headache prior to a relatively low altitude hike, so below the threshold which would require or cause altitude sickness or altitude headache, but they were told that the hike could do that. Before the ascent, this information was spontaneously shared with some, but not all participants. Those exposed to the negative information constituting a nocebo group reported a much higher rate of headache than those who had not been exposed to this information. Power of suggestion. The media and lay press have also been recognized for their role in disseminating sociogenic illness. For example, several symptom outbreaks initially attributed to environmental sources, including uh, infrasound uh, from wind turbines, so sub-audible sound waves from generated from wind turbines, uh, electromagnetic field emissions from power lines, and aerial spraying of pesticides were later believed to be psychogenically mediated. In these specific cases, epidemiologists subsequently observed that the frequency of complaints tended to increase after significant media coverage with density of symptom reporting geographically clustering in regions receiving the most negative press. So if there's a bunch of stories about the de detrimental effects of wind turbines and everything else, people that are receiving those media reports all of a sudden have an exponential increase in complaints related to those exact scenarios. So when we look at stuff like post-concussion syndrome and these online support groups where everyone goes and joins these groups and just continually propagates their symptoms forward, all of a sudden now everyone in that group is going to have a hard time getting better because those are going to manifest within them as well. The media reports on CTE has so many people concerned about the detrimental or possible detrimental effects of having even a single concussion, which obviously none of these NFL players have had a single concussion. There's gonna be frequent or numerous concussions. And even then, there's so much information that we don't know about this. We don't know if the actual pathology is the cause of any of the symptoms that people are reporting in life. 
and we don't know if those symptoms are related to concussions or brain injury of any kind. Those symptoms could be related to other things, potentially some nocebo-related things. Uh, moving down, uh, dun, dun, dun. Uh, so here we go. Nocebos in clinical concussion care. Negative expectations. Converging evidence from both epidemiological and clinical trials suggests that negative expectations may adversely affect concussion outcomes. While Canada, Greece, and Lithuania report similar rates of head injury, Canadians generally expect concussion symptoms to last for months to years longer than Greeks or Lithuanians and corresponding ex correspondingly experience a much higher rate of persistent post-concussion syndrome. Same amount of concussions, but in Canada, we have worse outcomes. In countries where it's not covered and not talked about as much, you have much better outcomes, even though the rate of injury is very similar. I was at a conference, and this is you know, adding in my personal stories. I was at a conference recently, the International Brain Injury Conference, and there was a presenter from, I think it was Finland or possibly Sweden. And he got up talking about um, mild and moderate traumatic brain injury in their clinical setting. And a lot of these people had evidence of brain injury on MRI, which most or all concussions do not. Concussions, by definition, basically have no MRI findings, no pathology noted. Yet, in patients with that had significant findings in these things, like brain injury findings on MRI in the moderate groups, recovered very, very quickly. Like within within a month, symptoms down, full resolution, full return to work, even within the first couple of months, every single subject, right? And it was funny because there was a lot of people from the U.S. and Canada because the conference was in Toronto, and they were questioning the data, saying, "Come on." There's no way. There's no way. And he's like, what do you mean? There's no way. But it's just how heavy it's covered in the media and the expectation, the negative expectation may be driving some of the chronicity we have in our symptoms. Okay. And this kind of shows that, right? Canada, Greece, Lithuania report similar injury, similar head injury rates, yet Canadians ex uh, generally expect symptoms to last for months to years longer than Greeks or Lithuanians. And Get, they get what they want. They get what they they get what they think, uh, and there you go. In a series of prospective clinical studies, beliefs that symptoms will negatively impact one's life, last a long time, or be beyond one's control have all been associated with less favorable concussion outcomes. Verbal suggestion and the therapeutic encounter. The specific words spoken during a clinical encounter may also impact outcomes after a concussion. For example, calling attention to one's prior history of traumatic injury and its potential adverse cognitive effects just prior to a neuropsychological test has been associated with lower self-rated cognitive function as well as performance indices of attention and working memory when you actually get tested. So telling somebody if you've had, you know, X number of concussions in the past, you're likely to have poor memory. Those people will think, yeah, you know what, I do have poor memory. And then they will actually perform poorer on the memory test when given this information prior to doing it. Um, another example of this from a different study is the University of Buffalo did a whole bunch of research on this where they brought in former NFL and former NHL players that believed that they had you know, cognitive impairments. And then they brought in non-contact athletes that had no belief of cognitive impairments. When they would ask the athletes about their cognitive impairments, they self-perceive themselves as having poor memory, poor concentration, poor executive function, all of these things. 
Then when they tested them, there was absolutely no difference between the groups. The only group is that the former NFL and NHL players believed that they had cognitive issues, and they also reported and, and scored higher on anxiety scales. Okay, so this is kind of getting back to that whole thing. If all of this media coverage about CTE and all the talk going on in professional athlete circles, then you have former professional athletes thinking, what if I have that? And then it can almost start to manifest itself because if there's a misattribution of symptoms, oh my God, I forgot what I was doing. I walked into this room and now I can't remember why I'm here. Oh my God, it's happening. It's starting. Here it is. And that can be the negative downturn for all of this stuff. Misattribution of symptoms, as I just mentioned. Individuals may overestimate their pre to post injury symptom change, endorsing current symptom rates similar to that reported in the general population while underestimating their pre-injury prevalence of symptoms. Misattribution is a common phenomenon whereby ordinary aches and complaints of daily life that are easily overlooked become more prominent because of worry and anxiety. In certain settings after an injury has occurred, these symptoms and complaints can commonly be attributed to the injury. Misattribution is likely more frequent with clinical entities like concussion where symptoms are nonspecific, diffuse, and exist at a high base rate in the general population. A lot of people get headaches. A lot of people feel dizzy from time to time. A lot of people feel fatigued. This is stuff that happens to everyone. But somebody without a concussion just goes, oh man, I got a headache today. I'm going to take an Advil and I'm going to go to work and I'm gonna move on with my day. Person with concussion says, oh my God, I have a headache. I have to do nothing for the rest of the day. I have to shut everything down. I have to turn off all the lights. I have to do all this stuff and I can't do anything. Don't talk to me. I have a headache. Okay. That's the difference. The misattribution of that headache to being caused by the concussion versus I have a headache. The differences are there. Um, dun, dun, dun. Misattribution may also be more common when accompanied by concrete negative beliefs of expectations. I have a brain injury, it's my brain injury that's doing it. Immediately, that's going to create negative connotation. As a hypothetical case, so I found this interesting, so I highlighted this one in pink, which means it's more important, I guess. As a hypothetical case, if an individual with a strongly held concussion-related concern uh, sustained the most minimal of force to the head, I've talked about this in previous podcasts. A person with a strongly held concussion-related concerns sustains a very minimal force impact to the head. Negative thoughts and feelings could bolster what would, what would have been a sub-threshold sensation into a consciously experienced symptom or symptom set. A sporadic benign headache could thereafter be interpreted as evidence of ongoing injury or normal everyday forgetfulness could be perceived as a resurgence of neuronal dysfunction. Next section. Repercussions of fear and anxiety. Anticipatory anxiety is another primary driver of the nocebo effect. A handful of studies to date have associated post-concussion symptom burden with experimentally induced stress, daily stress, and anxiety sensitivity. When anxiety leads to avoidant behavior, concussion recovery can be affected in a more downstream fashion as well. The case of cognophobia can be illustrative here. The phenomenon originally referred to headache sufferers who worried that due to personal vulnerability, pushing through concentration or problem-solving difficulties could be unsafe and or detrimental to health. In concussion, cognophobia has been associated with the avoidance of physical activity and traumatic stress triggers, as well as lower performance on memory testing. Uh, analogous patterns may play out with photophobia and cervical kinesiophobia following concussion. 
Cognophobia is the avoidance of cognitive activity for fear that doing that activity will make your situation worse. It will give me a headache. Oh, I can't do that. It'll flare me up. Okay, that is fear avoidance. You're not doing things based on an anxiety of something that could occur. However, there's no real evidence to support that it will occur. Uh, while often making one more comfortable in the short term, avoidant behaviors ultimately tend to worsen symptoms. Theoretically, we may consider whether some degree of learned non-use has occurred, whereby due to habituated avoidance of a specific behavior, example mental exertion, one's function remains far below one's potential. Such behaviors may prevent resiliency through utilization of one's cognitive reserve. Corresponding brain networks could subsequently atrophy or undergo negative neuroplastic changes with protracted disuse or avoidance. This is something I say all the time to my patients. In efforts to try and get them to realize that a little bit of pain and pushing through stuff is, is a good thing. For example, if anyone's done weight training out there, if I am going to go and do squats, and if I haven't done legs in a while, let's say I've been off working out, uh, you know, I've been on vacation for a couple months and I come back and I'm just like, you know, from the gym and I come back and I say, look, I'm gonna, I gotta get back into squats. So I go to the rack, I do squats. Even if I do much less weight than what I typically do, I'm likely gonna be sore. You should see me walk out of the gym after squats. I'm walking like Frankenstein, I can't move, okay? Next day, I'm a mess. The day after, I'm even worse. My legs are so sore. Even three days later, I'm sore. Now, if my response to that was to say, I can't do squats because it makes me sore, it gives me so much pain, it flares me up. And I look at that as a negative, right? I look at that delayed onset muscle soreness as a negative, not realizing or interpreting that that delayed onset muscle soreness is actually repair and making me stronger, right? Because if I were to say, I'm not doing squats anymore because of whatever, I'm gonna, maybe I lower my weight. Right? Oh, it's too sore. I'm going to lower the weight. I'm going to pull back. I'm going to pull back. Am I going to get stronger or weaker? I'm going to get weaker because I'm not doing the activity. But if I was to say, oh, yeah, I was so sore after, that's good. I'm going to go and do that again because it's pushing me. It's challenging me. And I go in and I do squats again. The next time, I'm still sore, but I'm only sore for two days now. Next time, I'm going to do it again. Boom. Now I'm sore for one day. Now I'm not getting sore at all. Time to up my weight. I want to be sore. I want to feel slight symptom increase. Otherwise, I am not doing shit for myself. If I go to the gym and work out to the point where I'm not getting sore, I'm not doing anything. I'm not having any growth. There's no growth there. And that's really what we're talking about here. If somebody has, an, has a fear avoidant behavior of, I can't do that because I get too symptomatic, there's no evidence to support the fact that having an increase in symptoms will flare you up or have any type of long-term negative repercussions. I'm saying this for benefit. I'm not trying to be, you know, I'm not trying to downplay or minimize. I'm saying this for your benefit. If you're out there listening to this right now and you're struggling because you're afraid of doing things, first of all, you should probably have somebody to help coach you through it so that you have somebody to lean on in the event you do have a quote unquote flare up. But this is for your benefit. It's, you need things that are beneficial for concussion are, exposing yourself to the stimulus that creates symptoms. It's also exercising, okay? And all of these things, in at least from what you've likely been told in the past, are things that were thought to be detrimental for concussion. But that's actually not the case. They're actually beneficial for concussion. 
right? And if we had been doing them all along, we probably wouldn't be in this chronic state that we're currently in, okay? In support of this notion, studies of prolonged complete rest after concussion have generally shown worse outcomes compared with relative rest, and multiple studies now, uh, now support a role for practice-based therapy as a primary treatment basis for rehabilitation. And also I would add in here that exercise, especially even in the acute stages. Um, I know Dave sometimes watches these, but Dave Lawrence is doing a ton of work on this at the University of Toronto right now, showing that exercise even as early as one day after injury could potentially speed the recovery of the concussion. Okay, I think it reduces the quote-unquote medicalization of the injury itself and gives, you know, kind of reduces the chance of these nocebo effects. Whereas if somebody comes in to see me and I go, oh man, you have a concussion? Well, you know, you could be in for a long haul, right? That can create all sorts of stuff. There's long-term potential repercussions there. And, uh, you know, you've had a few concussions before, so that's going to that's gonna be tough to recover from it because you've had this history. And, uh, like, what are you going to think? You're going to leave there and think, that's it. I'm screwed. And what's going to happen? You're going to develop and have persistent symptoms. Whereas if you come in and see me, I say, look, yes, it's a mild traumatic brain injury. There's actually no uh, structural damage to the brain, which is good news. You're going to have symptoms for a short period of time, and then you're going to recover. Most people recover in the first seven to 10 days kind of thing, right? Some people have some, some symptoms that can linger, but the good thing is that most of those are amenable to treatment. They require things like exercise and rehab and maybe some dietary changes, but they're all treatable, right? See the difference there and what's that patient gonna think? Okay, great, I'm in the right spot. I'm able to exercise, I'm able to kind of go to work. Perfect. That person will do better than the other person who's been told to rest and do nothing. Getting into CTE just slightly here, uh, while the evolving science of CTE is of great significance, its representation in the media has been criticized by some as biased, oversimplified, and alarming. A primary argument contends that by having the majority of news articles on concussion discuss CTE as a consequence provides an excessively negative representation of a single concussion injury, as far as the more common, um, as the far more common trajectory following concussion. Right? You're led to believe that concussion causes CTE and long-term impairment. However, most of the time, concussion will just resolve and be fine. Uh, taken as such, the media's representation of CTE in present-day America is likely raising public concern over CTE and arguably may be doing so to a greater de degree than is currently warranted based on the state of the science. The CTE research is at the lowest level of scientific research. It's a case series, a case series. No other media coverage would cover something as trivial as a case series, but yet the media is blowing it up. They're making it seem like we have conclusive proof that this is a reality, but in fact, we don't. We're literally at the first step of scientific research, meaning like we've seen it in a couple people. We don't really know what it does. We have no controls. Okay, let's start looking at it right start looking at it but they're making it seem like it's already a foregone conclusion which is affecting millions of people especially in North America where the coverage is more significant right you go to Europe not as much um, I think I just lost my place here 
Um, da, da, da. On the whole, it appears the public's perception of concussion is more negative than that of the biomedical community. The public, right, as a researcher, as a clinician in this space who reads this stuff every day, I'm looking at this going, okay, well, there's a lot of stuff we don't know, and I don't think we're jumping the gun here. But the public believes that it's a foregone conclusion, which is why when I post stuff on this, people comment all sorts of stuff without really having the context of it. Uh, though the majority of individuals sustaining a concussion are known to fully recover within several weeks, a predominance of lay people expect symptoms to last months to years, believe concussions can never be cured, and that symptoms reflect permanent brain damage and may worsen over time. Many also believe symptom exacerbation after concussion can be dangerous. However, no empirical data exists to support this notion. Kind of what I was saying earlier. Um, and then you get into this stuff, the potential, and this is what really bothers me, the potential for even bleaker consequences, CTE and suicide, okay? Suicidality is considered one of the, you know, kind of markers for CTE, and players will often commit suicide and write a note that says they want to donate their brain for CTE research, and this further propagates because if they're a high-profile athlete, it gets covered in the media, which then gets disseminated to everybody, and everyone believes that Concussions lead to CTE, which leads to suicide, but they don't take into account that suicide is actually lower among former professional athletes than it is in the general population. Uh, there's and it's so complex, something as as complex as mental health and suicide, to to try and link it with with something like a concussion, um, you know, or concussions during the playing years creates this nocebo effect because now it gets sensationalized in the media and then you have the copycat effect where you've had high school students who've committed suicide to donate their brain to CTE believing that they have some sort of issue when they may in fact have nothing wrong with them and this is where things get really really upsetting because we still have so much to learn and so much to know and yet people are taking you know this for for fact um, I think that's that's pretty much it. I mean, the one thing, um, oh, actually, no, I'll talk about this. Strategies for dealing with it. So as a clinician, it's you have to kind of walk this fine line because you do have to validate the patient's concerns, but you also have to you also have to rule out the kind of the biological factors, right? Like, is it a neck issue? Is it a visual issue? Is it a vestibular issue? You know, is there some organic thing here? And then once you're going through that and you've been able to rule some of that stuff out, it's now, okay, well, we're likely dealing with something where we have negative thought patterns and all this other stuff. But I try to frame that right away on, you know, visit number one of, I do the full, and if you haven't seen it yet, go to one of my, my Instagram posts, I say, what is a concussion? And I kind of explain, this is what a concussion is, this is what happens, this is what post-concussion syndrome is, this is our, these are the potential causes of why that could happen, and here's how we're gonna tackle each one of them. Just having that education and knowing that, yes, it's a temporary injury and there's some things that can cause, you know, long-term effects makes people feel a little bit more at ease and being able to kind of, you know, lower that down. Uh, working with beliefs and expectations, given the lay public's view of concussion symptoms as more functionally limiting and persistent than what has been demonstrated in research studies, careful el elicitation of patients' expectation regarding concussion recovery may be a useful starting point in a given clinical encounter. False beliefs should be carefully corrected. Framing may be important as well. In addition to correcting incorrect beliefs as they emerge in the clinic, clinicians can also make deliberate efforts to provide positive and realistic expectations for recovery. In support of this effort, the literature regarding support and positive expectation setting following acute concussion has, on the whole, 
been favorable. In these studies, clinicians offered emotional support and provided reassurance that the symptoms are generally benign and temporary shortly after presentation to the emergency department, resulting in reduced symptom burden, decreased anxiety, and improved functional outcomes as compared with standard care. Um, even focusing on the symptoms, I know we do this a lot in our clinics, we ask the symptom scale, right? Rate each of these symptoms on a zero to six scale. And we do this every day, right? And you know, but we don't do it in the patients that have some of this stuff going on because constantly reminding them of the potential symptoms, they go headache, oh yeah, 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 I do have a headache. And it's a reminder of it being there. They suggest a better way to do it for these patients that may have be presenting with some of these more psychogenic um, types of things to say, what symptoms are you experiencing? And let them come up with the descriptor to describe what they're feeling. Because if you lay it out there, fatigue, I'm tired right now, right? I had a shit sleep. So does that mean I have a concussion? No, like it happens day to day, right? So, but reminding them of the potential symptoms and causes keeps it top of mind and they look for it. So we have to, we have to be careful with that as well. Uh, dun, 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 dun. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's pretty much, pretty much it. Um, any questions? One question. Um, I mean, this is unrelated. <laughs> it's unrelated. It was the questions about uh, uh, nutrition-wise, fasting and P PCS. Um, we've covered nutrition and other things. I don't want to talk about that. But any questions? Any comments? Any um, you know arguments? Rebuttals? Anything like that? Again. The purpose of this was not to um, try and downplay anything or anyone's, anyone's experience with it. The, the purpose of this is to get you to realize how powerful your mind is. And if you're not willing to explore that idea, right, the people that are willing to sit down and say, you know what, there's something here. I mean, if somebody can give me a pill and make me have side effects that don't exist, including my skin getting red when I have an acupuncture needle that doesn't actually pierce the skin, right? Your mind is so powerful that it can manifest whatever symptoms you believe could occur. And if you're sitting there thinking like, here I am in this, in this situation, I'm not getting better, I'm Googling stuff and I'm reading all these horror stories online, you'll start to manifest that and you'll believe that there's no way out, right? So if you're willing to explore that, you have a substantially better chance of getting better than those who aren't willing to do it. Case in point, I have, uh, I, well, I had a patient, he's now been discharged, fully recovered, back to normal, um, everyday life. This was something that was, um, it was just, it's recent, so it's top of mind, but this happens frequently, is patient comes in describing that, you know, I have this, I have, I'm just foggy, I have low energy, all these things, um, you know, I exercise, I get headaches, I do all this stuff. Okay, we get them exercising. Okay, those symptoms start to drop. We start knocking things off. Okay, visual. Yeah, he's got some visual tracking issues, you know, whatever. We start giving a little bit of rehab for that. Symptoms drop a little bit. And we hit this threshold where it just, we can't, we can't get better. And I'm constantly encouraging, saying, look, I think, I think there's stuff going on. I think there's an anxiety issue here, potentially some other mental health component that's keeping the symptoms from, you know, keeping you from being able to, to advance. And no, 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 it's not that, it's not that, it's not that, it's not that. And like daily, I'd be like, look, have you given any more thought to, you know, incorporating a psychologist or, you know, talking to your doctor about maybe some short-term medication or something like that? No, 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 no. Anyway, all of a sudden I don't see this particular individual for about three weeks and book back in. 
And uh, yeah, so I took your advice, went to my doctor, put me on an antidepressant, and uh, my symptom score is zero. I'm back to full everything. Okay, right? So hesitation, not wanting to do it, and then ultimately that being the catalyst for what allows you to recover, okay? I don't care what it is that allows you to recover. My goal is to get you to recover. So I'm wanting to explore all options. So don't downplay, don't minimize. You know, everyone, you know, everyone talks about me about like the stigma of mental health. I'm actually trying to reduce the stigma of mental health and incorporate and demonstrate how important it actually is um, in all sorts of different injuries, all sorts of different diseases, all sorts of different things. Uh, concussion being um, no different and probably one of <laughs> the most prevalent or possible uh, ways for this because the symptoms are so subjective. They're so you know, quote unquote normal, They're, they happen to everybody from time to time, so it's really hard to separate what's what. And then because of the media hype, I think it's just exacerbating a lot of things. So anyway, really good article. The article again is nocebo effects in concussion is all that is told beneficial. And the author is Ginger Pollock, MD, um, and it's published in the American Journal of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation. Um, again, yeah, a bit of a different format, but I thought it was important enough to kind of share all that research, frame the idea and the argument so that those listening could take that information and hopefully um, help themselves to, uh, to get better and start the road to recovery. Yay. Okay, cool. Thanks, everyone. That's it for today. See you next week. Just one more thing before you go. This episode is brought to you by Complete Concussion Management's continuing education platform, more specifically, the Level 1 course, Introduction to Concussion Management for Healthcare Professionals. This course dives into the pathophysiology of acute concussion and covers all the things that happen inside the brain immediately upon impact and also in the days and weeks that follow. We dive into metabolic dysregulation, blood flow impairments, autonomic nervous system dysregulation, heart rate variability, and much, much more. This course also examines the biomechanics of concussion, subconcussive impacts, and looks at the research surrounding concussion prevention programs, and more specifically, neck strengthening. In the final module, we take a very in-depth look at chronic traumatic encephalopathy, otherwise known as CTE. We separate the media hype from the scientific literature and give you an overview and comprehensive in-depth understanding of this particular disease, which allows you, the healthcare professional, to be able to have better conversations with your patients and help to potentially ease their minds from a evidence-based standpoint. This course is meant for healthcare professionals, but it by no means is excluded to healthcare professionals because we know that many people out there that are watching and listening to these podcasts are people with friends, family members, or personal experience with concussions that also want to learn more. So if you want to take this course, you're free to do so. Please visit the link below or in the show notes to see the level one course. Thank you for listening to the Complete Concussion Management Podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe and let us know by leaving a review. Have questions about concussion management for future episodes? Submit them to our website, Facebook, or even Instagram. See you next time.